Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for coaches, athletes, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, Todd Davidson, and on episode eight of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have strength and conditioning coach for Scottish rugby and founder of Athletic Evolution, Rob Anderson. How you doing, Rob? How's things, mate? Yeah, good. Thank you. Yourself? Yeah, very well. Thank you. A little bit of coaching. A little bit of coaching this morning, but otherwise, relaxed day. How's uh, how's it going? Pulling your athletic evolution conference together. Yeah, good, good. So we've got everyone lined up for June second. Uh, we're just having a Megatland Sport Complex, which is where Barrow Muir um, Rugby Club is. So yeah, looking forward to hearing uh, from Sean coming, particularly around growth and maturation and kind of where we're at, and then also quite to kind of deliver my thoughts in terms of philosophy and building kind of the athletic skills toolbox. So should be good. Should be a good day. Excellent. I'll, I obviously I'll chuck links to chuck links to that in the show notes. One question that I, one question I ask every person who comes on the podcast, uh, inspired by Simon Sinek's book, start with why is, uh, mm-hmm. why do you do what you do and how has that? Why led you to what you're currently doing? Okay. So, uh, I've thought about this and there's a few different kind of, but the one that probably is the most obvious for me is uh, probably a bit strange and I've always been intrigued by the potential within people. Um, so I remember as a kid kind of being in the back seat of the car and we'd drive past a person and I'd think, I wonder if that person is like a world champion kickboxer, but they didn't, didn't never knew it. Or that person's a brilliant artist, but they never knew it. And so I've always had this concept around, you know, people's potential and what they're capable of. Um, the big thing for me growing up, so I come from a very musical family. My dad was a professional musician for years on end. And in my family, the second you could move, you got given an instrument. So I played the trumpet for 10 years um, and practice was always a norm. So my, my three brothers and sister would always be in our rooms practicing. That was just a given. And so when I moved away from music and went into sport, I kind of took that with me, that kind of um, mentality. And once I failed to become a pro athlete, I kind of thought, what's the next best thing? How can I stay in this environment? How can I stay around this kind of performance mentality? So that kind of led me to coaching. So I guess that kind of typical thing of those who can do and those who can't coach um, or teach. So, yeah, so basically I kind of really, really loved, uh, I guess, learning and improving and, and developing into your potential. And I've kind of just followed that rabbit hole. So that took me to, to college. That took me to uni to do a degree in uh, strength and conditioning at St. Mary's, then sticking around for a master's in physiology, and then basically down in Bournemouth at, at Leaf Studio School, doing some stuff there for their kind of sports performance program. Um, and then eventually, after a number of kind of opportunities around the UK, ending up in uh, in Scotland with Scottish rugby. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Wicked. You you mentioned about saying staying in that high performance environment, whether it's music, sport, um, or whatever field. You did a brilliant video that I really liked uh, the other day about what high performance is to you. Now, I know a lot of clubs or organizations, high performance is the facility or just simply sticking high performance on the back of a hoodie. Um, What does high performance look like to you and how do you develop a culture where this is the norm? Mm. Um, So for me, uh, like, because I think you can have high performance athletes who are, are paid who aren't high performance. Like, you just need to look at the sport of football to see that. In terms of, you know, the middle of the week they're out boozing and then they're playing on the weekend. Like, they might be getting paid a ridiculous amount, but they're not high performance athletes in terms of their mentality. So for me, 
It's a desire to improve and perform at the highest level possible. Sixteen-year-olds who are amateurs who have a high-performance attitude. I see international women's players who are part-time that have a high-performance attitude. So for me, it's a real desire to improve and, and bring out the best. Um, and I think a big part of this, well, parts I guess for me is one is like the coaching delivery in terms of the quality of information and analysis that's kind of given to, to athletes. The second part is like the attitude and the application of the athlete to training, and then the third is kind of the culture or the motivational climate of the group. Um, so for me, it's a, it's kind of leading from the front coach that, you know, you're seeing coaches who, who are hungry to learn, hungry to, to improve, hungry to make themselves a better coach because that kind of drips down to you, to your athletes, but also there's things just within, uh, kind of the training processes. So accountability. So for example, like monthly bests, like have you improved your counter-movement jump or your speed or your lifts from, from last month? So this idea of constant um, and accountability they're kind of the biggest ones for me in terms of how we facilitate a high performance environment or a high performance attitude and with your with your athletes at Scottish rugby or even the athletes you work with um, for athletic evolution do you come up with how you want to keep them accountable or if you're working with a squad for example will you say right uh, guys what are the standards we want to be kept accountable? What are the consequences for, for example, not hitting those metrics or uh, what punishments, if you will, for want of a better word, are going to happen if this isn't the case? So I'd say uh, kind of cross both of those. So there are some that are kind of um, required within the setup of Scottish rugby. So, for example, we kind of need to take monthly bests for players in terms of... Um, so a bit of the testing battery that we do, kind of movement jump, 1200 meter Bronco, and then um, speed testing up to 40 meters. So those are things that we feedback along with attendance. Um, for those uh, kind of athletes who maybe aren't uh, competent in terms of lifts yet, we track their kind of improvement through a competency tracker that was uh, put together by Jared Deacon, which is really good. For those guys who are competent, then it will be their monthly bests around their lifts. Um, so feedback, then quarterly they'll do national testing, which is pretty similar. So kind of movement jump, speed, but they'll do a yo-yo instead of a bronco. Um, and then within uh, my own environment, then there's other metrics that we're collecting that uh, some coaches might not feedback, but some that I do. So for example, the two big ones that I like to feedback are RPE and GPS. So for me, if I'm asking players to give data, I know one of the biggest things uh, that affects the adherence is that players actually see you doing something with that data. So I send the players that we collect RPEs for, I send them the same report I send the coaches. Um, so they see exactly what the coaches see. They see what their RPE load was for last week, for the last four weeks, etc. And because I want them to see that it's not just useless stuff we're asking them for, it's actually things that matter that are implemented, which obviously helps with adherence because consistent with reporting your RPEs, for example. Um, and then the same with testing data, I feed that back. Um, a big one for me as well is within a session. So, I'm trying not just to create better athletes in terms of what they can do physically, but also their understanding. Um, so I kind of look at it as I'm building mini coaches. So if I'm you know, coaching a group of 12, where there's maybe six who are lifting, I don't want those other six just sort of around twiddling their thumbs. Like I want them watching their partners. So often before I give feedback, I'll ask their partner. I'll be like, okay, what do you see in that squat? And they might say, okay, they're you know, running them back. Okay, what do they need to do to make it better? Or they need to get their chest up. Okay, we'll tell them then. 
So I'm trying to equip them with the, with the knowledge and the power to coach each other. And that comes in really useful. Like, you know, that's an extra 12 sets of eyes. Um, so, you know, if something's happening behind me in a gym six weeks later, rather, you know, their teammate could be spotting that, et cetera. And I've had this where one of our under-20s players who was injured at the time um, dislocated his patella and I was moving a bench for him and I could see over the corner of my shoulder that someone was doing deadlifts really dodgily and I kind of asked another player, I said, hey, what do you see from the side there? And he's like, this. And I said, right, tell him. And I finished up, you know, getting his bench in position because it's just me that has the knowledge. Like I'd like to think at the end, the players have a good knowledge. So it's equipping them. So they're feeding back to their peers. They're keeping each other accountable, et cetera, that, that kind of thing as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. And in terms of you, so obviously accountability, actually thinking about how you group athletes together or how they coach each other. What's the, and obviously we spoke off air about the, your business side of things, whether it's personal, professional or business, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Um, so I'd say there's, there's two for me. So one from a professional level, one from a personal level. So one from a professional level, I'd say, I'll hold my hands up here and say when I was a lot younger, I would criticize coaches who were above me that I thought maybe weren't really valid the position they were in. I thought I knew better than them or, you know, I guess when you're at university, you kind of come out with that arrogance because you've learned all the theory, but you have no other practical element. Um, so my advice would be to think critically about why you're complaining or criticizing coaches who have the position you want. Because the reason they're there is they know something you don't know. So even if they don't have the technical knowledge you have, they know something you don't know. And that might be they know how to create good relationships. They know how to do conflict resolution well. They know how to uh, interact with athletes on a much better level than you do. There's some reason they're there. and you. Brilliant. Yeah, I remember when I was on my internship at, with the English Institute of Sport and with GB Boxing, and they basically said to me for the first few weeks, couple of months, that if I was seeing something in a movement, and that I've deemed for whatever reason uh, suboptimal. They said, right, don't say something because chances are we've spotted it too, but there's a reason why we're not saying something. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like you said about that mindset of actually, there's probably more context to this situation than I realize. I think that's really honest and uh, quite a good reflection. So mm. with that in mind, obviously you said about looking at coaches in certain organizations. Uh, and I know you were saying about developing coaches underneath you. Who's had the biggest influence on you as a coach, be it an author you've read or someone you've spent time with? Well, I actually said there was two. I haven't told you my personal one. Sorry, sorry, my fault. That's all right. That's all right. I've waffled a bit. Um, So my my piece of personal advice, and I give this one to younger coaches coming up, is to get better at money management. Um, So I don't think anyone goes into strength conditioning for the finance because if you do, you're an idiot. However, like true wealth is the freedom to make choices. And money is a part of that. So money helps you have the freedom to make choices rather than being forced into an outcome. So the better you get at money management, the more choices you have in terms of how you, how you want to spend your time and you know, your future, et cetera. And in terms of the biggest influence on you as a coach? Um, so this is going to be, I guess, slightly, slightly different. So um, I would have to say my dad, which he'd probably laugh at and be very surprised about because he isn't a coach. Yeah. Um, he's a music teacher but he has a real intrinsic passion for what he does. Um, and so to give an example, uh, I was Skyping him today, he's 70 years of age and behind him, he had six guitars up on the wall. Um, 
we're practicing every day, still performing all the time. Every time we talk to him, he's talking about what gigs he's doing, what, what new bands he's playing in. He has a real approach of mastery. I mean, he plays like 10, 10 or more instruments. He's still in love with music as he's ever been. Um, and he was heavily involved, obviously, in kind of my musical beginnings. So that real influence for me about um, chasing what you love, um, that's always been kind of his influence. And he's, you know, uh, there's been a few catchphrases, I would say, in his teaching that I've kind of taken on board and applied into, into sports. So a big one he talks all the time is, talks about kiss, keep it simple or keep it simple, stupid. So for me, in a, in a sporting context, that kind of means keep it simple. That the basics can go a long way. Not everything needs to be complicated and complex. Then the second one, he's a jazz musician, so they like to improvise. His kind of catchphrase was there's no such thing as a wrong note. And kind of the interpretation of that is that there's no failure, there's only feedback. So don't view things as catastrophic or as an emotional attachment. Take the feedback from it and look at how you can improve the next time. That makes a lot of sense. I was, I mean, I'm not a musical person by any stretch, but I suppose in the strength and conditioning world, my interpretation of that is when people label an exercise uh, bad with no prior context. Um, You mentioned, so what would you say, for example, to parents or technical coaches or perhaps those uh, who perhaps aren't as well informed who say something like, I don't know, don't deadlift, you'll hurt your back or don't squat, it's bad for your knees. I think uh, like I, I really like the Dan John one, like how you squat is bad for your knees. That's a, that's a big one for me. But I, I think there's no, like we shouldn't demonize certain exercises because usually these things have been given, given a reputation wrongly or with kind of added detail that we haven't been privy to. So for example, um, someone who had an existing back issue or someone who didn't move well um, or you know was loaded in terms of a movement pattern and therefore produced an injury and suddenly they're telling everyone, oh, you shouldn't deadlift, that's how I did my back. Like, well, maybe you lifted in a really crappy way and you didn't have a good coach and, and weren't progressed, you know, um, in a really slow manner. Um, and the other thing is like, you know, kind of extenuating circumstances. Does that person have an existing condition? Does that person have a legitimate reason why they shouldn't be squatting or deadlifting? You know, there's not kind of cast iron rules for everyone. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You mentioned earlier um, about, in your younger days, potentially criticizing coaches without, um, without prior context. So Mm -hmm. for yourself as a coach now, what do you think your harshest critic would say if they either watched you coaching or had an idea of how you coach or strengths, weaknesses, et cetera? Mm. Um, I was thinking about this one. I was thinking I'll, I'll be really honest. I probably would think that they would say I'm too friendly with with my athletes in terms of not serious enough in sessions. And I think that's probably an offshoot of me wanting to make it fun and enjoyable, but also a kind of human-centered approach in that, like if you come into my sessions, you'll hear me asking them about how school's going, what they're doing on the weekend. Other things seem unrelated, but that's because I purposely want them to know that I'm interested in them as a human being and yeah. not just as an athlete. So they've got value to me outside the program, not just because they're playing rugby. So it might seem unrelated or seem that I'm being too casual, but it's actually... I'm wanting them to realize that they're valuable and you know that if they're injured or they're not selected or they're deselected or whatever, they still have value outside of being an athlete. Yeah. And like you said, they're, they're not just, I don't know, uh, weight on a bar or how high they can jump. Um, mm. I suppose it also helps to build a picture of the athlete in front of you. So if it's coming to coaching cues, you can think of something that actually is going to really stick with that person rather than, Oh, here's why I tell all of my athletes and you're one of my athletes. So therefore you get the yeah, same. Totally. 
And I would say that's one of the best monitoring tools you've got. Like I've had conversations that have produced uh, changes in a program or changes in someone's schedule because of those conversations of them saying, well, actually I've done four hours of PE today and I'm really, really knackered. And I wouldn't have known that if we hadn't had that conversation and that's impacted what we've done in the session. Um, so, you know, it's actually really important to know your athletes is the best monitoring tool you can get. Oh, absolutely. Whenever, whenever I see expensive stuff or, you know, hydration status or, you know, um, the, I'm trying to think of the wrong Joel Jameson news, uh, heart rate variability. I think, well, what's this going to tell me that a really good relationship with my athlete might not tell me and then i question whether it's uh, of value you mentioned in one of your videos uh about how to select cpd that's relevant to you um do you want to mm-hmm. go into a little bit more detail about that because i know that uh, a lot of coaches get frustrated having shelled out money booked a weekend off to then come with no take-homes yeah i think uh this is one of the things that i get quite frustrated at and i mean it's often the case when there's like kind of big conferences on because they're obviously trying to cater for everyone. But the problem is when you cater for everyone, you also cater for no one. Um, so you can end up sitting in seminars that are all about a piece of kit you don't have access to. And it's nice to, it's entertaining, but it's not really useful. So I think like my mentality now going into CPD and also when I organize and deliver CPD myself is how is this going to change my next session? So when I deliver CPD, I want people to walk away knowing when they coach tomorrow, this is how that's going to impact that session. So there's some sort of immediate payoff. I think the other thing is um, looking at things that are relevant to your field. So there's things that are nice to know, but there's things that actually we need to know. Um, Seeking out those things. So there's probably coaches in your area that you could seek out, take out for coffee, watch them coach, watch them deliver, pick their brain on something that's their specialty. Um, And then also um, like be aware that if people are hungry for that information, if you're hungry for it, sorry, there's other people who are as well. So that's really how the Athletic Evolution Conference got started. Like I wanted to hear what Howard had to say. I wanted to hear from Simon Brandish and Shane Fitzgibbon and, and Griff. And, and it's far more efficient for me to bring four guys to Edinburgh than for me to do four trips to Ireland and Bolton and um, Derby and London. And so actually there's, there's real value in getting people to come to you and sticking out to other people and saying, hey, are you interested in learning from Dan Baker? Are you interested in learning from Rodri Lloyd? You know, there's the guys that I've done in the past as well. And they've always been successful because people are interested. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously about rather than moaning that these people are so far away, actually doing something about it. So my follow-up question to that is if you could spend a period of time observing one coach with his or her athletes, uh, what coach would you like to spend time with? And why would that, why would you choose that person? Uh, I've been greedy and I've picked two. <laughs> so um, my first one would be Jeremy Frisch, um, who anyone in the youth athlete kind of world is probably uh, up to scratch on, simply because I've spent a lot of time with really great coaches like Shane Fitzgibbon and Simon and Howard and those guys. So I've seen those guys coach. He's a guy that I see little clips of on Twitter and I'm really interested in his stuff because it seems innovative and fun and applicable. So he'd be one. Um, the other one would be Charlie Francis. So yeah. obviously a really well-known uh, speed coach. Obviously, wrote the book Speed Trap and you know, kind of the vertical vertical integration model. So he'd be another one who it'd be awesome to to kind of touch base with and see what his thoughts were. I like it. I like it. Um, you obviously mentioned the um, people who you're bringing to the conference, and you obviously say you're catering specifically for youth athletes. Uh, my next mm-hmm. question is, what is your philosophy when it comes to training an athlete? And 
does this change at all when there's youth athletes in front of you versus say um an adult athlete Mm. Well, at this point in time, I only really train youth athletes. So I'm thinking the last athletes I trained at senior level would have been Jess Grimson and Vicky Palmer, the Commonwealth Games uh, volleyball pair. So, okay. yeah, mostly kids these days. Um, so my my philosophy around that, like, it's kind of parts to it. So the first one is you're only a caretaker. So at this level, I will have someone for two years, maybe three or four, and then I'm passing them on to someone else. And I don't necessarily know who that person is or where they'll be and how their programs run. So they might be someone who's really into weightlifting. They might be someone who hates weightlifting. They might be someone who's really into bodyweight training or really into compound lifts or really into plyos. So I can't predict what that person's going to want. So what I want to do is give my athletes a, a toolbox of skills that they can pick on when they get to that level. So when they walk in, so the next person's program, that person says, hey, can you do a front squat? Yeah, no worries. Can you do an overhead squat? Yeah, brilliant. Can you do uh, a box jump? Yeah. Can you do a kettlebell swing? Yeah. Can you do, you know, behind neck jerk? Yeah. So I want to give them the skills they can draw upon because what that next guy to do is to just start training. If they have to spend six to nine months learning something, that's six to nine months that they're not going to get to improve from a, a, like a power or speed or strength perspective, for example. So what I want to do is acknowledge that I'm just a caretaker for this period in time, that I'm going to pass this person on. And what I want to pass them on with is a toolbox of skills that they're really competent in performing. And you, you mentioned there about, like you said, you don't know what that coach is going to do. Uh, you've mm -hmm. obviously rattled off uh, a load of exercises. How do you, within your training process or within your idea of how you're going to develop an athlete for the longer term, where's your starting point? Bearing in mind, you've just said, the coach could literally have them do any number of things. What are your basics? So uh, I'm really big on the fundamental human movements. So push, pull, jump, land, hinge, squat. They're kind of the backbone of, of any training program. Um, we, in terms of Scottish rugby, we'll get guys coming into our program around 14 or 15. So circle or kind of post pubertal, depending on where they're at. Um, so for a lot of our uh, athletes, I guess, um, kind of enter into my model and what I call the learn stage. So in terms of the model I like to use, we talk about learn, stretch, load, and explode. So learn is about competency. Can you get competent in a small range of fundamental movements? Then uh, stretch is about can we stretch the bandwidth to exclude variations of those movements? Such as? Then it's competent in that. We then load the most robust ones, and then we focus on the explosivity of those in the final stage. So that's kind of the model that we work from. So in, in regards to the, uh, the stretch part of that model, I think uh, mm -hmm. one thing I've definitely been guilty of is I've looked at a pan and thought, yeah, I know that looks good. I know that I can load it. And I automatically think, right, I'm going to load it with external load. So I might think, right, bodyweight squat looks good. Let's go straight into mm -hmm. a goblet squat because we need to get athletes strong because this is what the research says. How else do you try and stretch that pan besides, say, just adding weight to it? Yeah, so I think that's a natural kind of progression the way you talked about. We kind of go, that skill looks good, time to get strong. Um, and I think that's kind of inherent in that unless someone specifically lays out the goalposts of, hey, let's actually look at can we improve this toolbox, the automatic go-to thing is if I've gone from squatting 100 to squatting 120, then I'm a good S&C coach because I've given that athlete an extra 20 kilos. So what I've done with my guys is try to say, look, the goalpost is not stronger at this point in time the goalpost is a wider variety so for example what i kind of look at is from a variation perspective there's loads of things we can manipulate 
So we can manipulate the implement. So it might be a dumbbell or a kettlebell or a bar or body weight. We can manipulate the tempo. So we could focus on a real eccentric control or pause, uh, concentric explosive kind of nature. Um, we can focus on unilateral variations. So kind of an added stability element. Um, and then also symmetry. So for example, you could have a goblet squat with two hands, the goblet squat where it's just on the right-hand side of the body or the left-hand side of the body. Each of those are, are kind of emphasizing a different level of symmetry. So the implement, the tempo, the unilateral um, kind of element, and then also symmetry right to left are kind of the big ones that spring to mind. And do you, do you like your youth athletes, for example, to have ticked each of those boxes or what context does it depend on uh, as to whether, for example, uh, if you had a rugby athlete who was, say, seven, you might go through all of those. And if you had a rugby athlete who's 18 who could squat competently but perhaps desperately needs to get strong for the first team, what, what do you use as your assessment tools as to how many of those boxes you will try and tick versus, okay, actually now we do re- legitimately need to get you strong? Yeah, I think a big element of it is, um, well, firstly, training age is kind of something you've alluded to, but also where that person is in their pathway. I think this is a really, really important area, um, actually, that people don't fully appreciate is they don't actually understand where they are in the pathway. Um, they try and coach their under 14 like he's a 22-year-old playing senior level. Um, they don't appreciate that actually he's at this stage in his pathway and they shouldn't be coaching what they fancy coaching. They should be coaching what this kid needs. So what does the kid need at that point in time? Um, so yeah, there's some variability in terms of what that looks like. And so for someone who's like seven, for example, I'm not in a rush. I've got loads of time with that guy. So I'm going to take my time. We might do some different variations. We might um, lengthen it out a bit, let that kind of adolescent awkwardness stage. And then maybe we'll look at really chasing load. That isn't to say that that, that athlete's not going to get stronger. Of course, they're going to get stronger. They're practicing the movement pattern. They've got some external load. It's just that strength isn't our primary driver at that point in time. However, with someone later on who's maybe in full contact rugby at a senior level, well, actually, if that guy doesn't get strong, he's at an injury risk quite a high severity so there's a trade-off there in terms of saying okay maybe we will cut back on the variety but we'll look at increasing the load because we need to get you strong because you're going to be tackling 110 115 kilo props brilliant and you obviously you've mentioned your role within scottish rugby and we've briefly spoken about um you creating uh, athlete evolution what was it that made you finally say right this needs to happen i know why i want to do it but now i'm actually going to start this thing Okay. Uh, I think I probably bored my girlfriend with the idea for about a year before I actually pulled my finger out. Um, but it, what happened was uh, it basically came about during a hiatus in working for SNC. So had a quite a negative experience at one club and had left the industry for a little bit and was working in private healthcare, which made me realize how much I hated that and really did love SNC. Um, so I was out of kind of the, the ballpark at that point in time and I wanted to keep my hand in it. Um, and I also wanted to get my thoughts down kind of coherently. So I kind of started writing a blog, assuming, you know, no one's going to read this, but it'll be kind of cathartic. And then it's kind of grown from there. But it's probably one of the best things I've ever done, as it's led to loads of opportunities I would never have anticipated, like you know, the workshops I've presented and hosted, running my own conference, presenting other people's conferences, even going across to Sweden as a consultant for NIFA Sweden. So there's been loads of payoffs um, for me on that front. And in terms of starting, in terms of starting your own business, uh, a lot of SNC coaches, or sorry, the number of SNC jobs relative to the number of prospective coaches, uh, there's a massive imbalance. 
Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to somebody who is perhaps looking to go into business or perhaps uh, if we rewind time and with the mistakes you've made now, what advice might you give to yourself if you were to start over again? Uh, if I was to start over again, so one of the things I realized probably, well, probably only about 12 months ago was that I was writing to the wrong audience. So I was basically writing to S&C coaches who all agreed with me. So I was in this silo of team kind of agreement. And only last year, I realized that if I wanted to, to make the impact that I wanted, I actually needed to write to the sport coach and to the parent. So that's been a big change that I've done in terms of the style and, and the articles that I write and that kind of stuff, which has produced a big response. Um, if I was starting again in SNC, I would go and get work experience or I work at a top facility. So the two that spring to mind for me are Team CC in Bournemouth, run by Russell Jolly, who's doing a fantastic job, and Locker 27 by Matt Church. And guys who've been in the industry uh, a long time and are really successful on a business front. Um, so I would go there to get an insight into running a business and not just the coaching element. Do you, th- do you think that that's a mistake that a lot of prospective coaches make in the sense of they kind of know they've got to get experience, but naturally they're going to go towards S&C coaching opportunities because, well, they want to be an S&C coach. So why do they need business? Yeah, 100%. I think, especially in this day and age, the way things are going, like your your own personal brand is really important. That's why like athletic evolution for me now has kind of evolved, I guess, pardon the pun, um, into something that's autonomous. So no one can take that away from me. So even if I lost my job at Scottish Rugby, I've still got that. It's also an avenue for me to pursue opportunities that don't fit into my day job. So if I hadn't done that, a lot of these opportunities I wouldn't have been able to do because they didn't come through Scottish Rugby. They came through Athletic Evolution. So there's the autonomy of having your own thing. There's also the ability to, to capitalize on other um, kind of opportunities. But also I do think there is a bit of snobbery around, you know, SNC for, you know, athletes versus the general public. Like, to be honest, if someone was interviewing for a job with me, and one person had Team CC on their, in their CV and someone else had, I don't know, Kidderminster Harriers or something or Kidderminster United or whatever they're called. Like I would consider the experience at Team CC far better than what they're probably going to get at you know, a low-level football league club. Um, so I think the, people need to be more critical around what they're getting to do because I would know for a fact that that person's actually coaching people on a daily basis probably writing programs they're probably doing warm-ups and cool-downs and interacting with people and getting the coaching skills whereas that other guy's probably just making protein shakes test units testing people's urine not really getting a whole lot of uh, of empowerment to develop their own programs etc so it's looking at the tracksuit logo look at what am i actually getting out of this experience do, do you think there's also a snobbery in regards to internships where um prospective coaches also think well I want to do an internship with, I don't know, Manchester United, Arsenal, English Institute of Sport. And they overlook opportunities that might actually be on their doorstep, which, yes, they might not be advertised on the UKSA, but could give them more coaching experience, could give them more life skills. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, so to give you an idea of the experience I had, so I did um, the first SNC experience I had was the women's rugby union team at St. Mary's, which was not a bit standard, didn't have a huge turnout, but it gave to run my own program and, and to coach. I then moved on to do St. Mary's Rugby League and Harlequins uh, Rugby League before they came to London Broncos. So there was a lot around that area uh, that was like five minutes or ten minutes 
you know, transport for me that gave me a really valuable experience. And then that moved on to Watford and on to, you know, loads of other, other programs. But it started with the university women's union team. Going, going back to what you said previously about how you realized your mistake was writing to other S&C coaches who maybe won't, wouldn't be your target audience in terms of buying products from yourself. And you mm-hmm. realized you had to aim it more at sports coaches or parents. Mm-hmm. How do we as strength and conditioning coaches? So for example, when we go to a conference, we're all sort of talking the same language. We're all nodding our heads. We use terms like move well and get strong. And we all interpret what each other means. And we probably say and speak the same language. How do we ensure that, for example, when we are talking to parents and we are talking to technical coaches, that they are hearing and understanding the terms we're using exactly as we've meant them? Mm. I think I think that is important because things do get misinterpreted. So I think, first of all, like clarifying terms would be really important. Um, so what do we mean when I say move well? What does move well mean? And I find this is a real difficult one because we can all agree that 100 kilos on the bar is 100 kilos but we can look at someone's squat and disagree on what is a good movement and what isn't. And that is effectively a lot of the problem with youth SNC. Um, so explaining what good movement is, why it's vital, but also I think this is probably credited to Ben Rosenblatt, what gets measured gets managed. So don't measure load if you actually really care about quality, measure the quality. So put some system in place, whether it's video feedback, whether it is just a red, amber, green system, um, you know, put something in place that measures what you actually want to measure and can um, show progress on. Don't say the goalposts are A, but measure C because that's not giving the right message. So I think that also helps to create buy-in on the athlete's part or the parent's part because they know what the goalposts are and they know what progress is. If you don't dictate, hey, this is what the goalposts are and this is how we're going to measure progress, then pretty much the only metric we have is are they bigger, faster, stronger? So and in- one, of the, one of the biggest mistakes I've made with coaching youth athletes is applying sort of an adult-based structure to them. So, for mm-hmm. example, I uh, did an internship with Middlesex County Cricket, uh, was lucky enough to work with their under-11s, but then a couple of times I've applied a warm-up that is too structured to uh, 14-year-old girls in a PE lesson. What mm-hmm. are some of the mistakes, A, that you've made with youth athletes and B, how has some of the stuff you've learned from working with youth athletes actually transferred over to any work with adult populations you do? Mm. I think um, like cues is a big one. Like sometimes you can use cues that are a bit too technical. Like I remember there's a lad that I do kind of privately um, who is a goalkeeper. And I remember he was moving relatively well, but it could have been better. And I gave him a cue and he actually started moving worse. And I just forget what I just said do what you were doing before. So I actually did the opposite of what a good coach would do. I made him worse. Um, so sometimes being aware of what your, how your cues are being interpreted. Um, but I think like the biggest thing is like, it's obviously got to be fun. Like that's the biggest buy-in. If people will do stuff, it's fun. So for me, like I kind of have different scenarios. So in the context of like a team camp, say for like the under 16s where they're there for a week, I'll come in and it'll be like some sort of game as a heart raiser. Um, if it's more, kind of within a gym session, like mixing it up, creating challenges and conditions. So for example, uh, like I had people doing hurdle drills the other day, but I kind of put in a condition where we kind of mixed the hurdles up in terms of direction. I said, right, you're only allowed to have one foot on the floor at any one time. And this next time it was, okay, you can go, every time you go over a hurdle, you have to go through the next one. Um, so kind of I set the constraints and then they came up with what that looked like. So having the imagine, imagination to, to, to create a bit of variety, giving them things. So for example, saying, okay, I want you to set up an obstacle course and do our kind of jump and land mechanics around that. 
So I think those are some things. Um, the things that translate into adult clients. Um, so I think cues, like the big one is progressions and regressions, like you learn from coaching kids. Um, and then also like simple programs are often the most effective. Like you don't need to jump into a West side method or Texas, like sometimes actually starting strength will do. And you know, three sets of five is enough. Um, I think a big one, a big take home I got from the last athletic evolution conference um, was from my friend Shane Fitzgibbon. And he basically says, if it works with a kid, it will work with an adult, but not vice versa. Um, which I think is really good. Like a lot of kids that games I will go and I'll do with maybe some older athletes who maybe 18 or 20 and it works, but you can't do things the other way around. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's definitely stuff that there's definitely stuff that I've sort of seen online of PE teachers doing and then done in my internships when I was at Middlesex leading the warm up, and I thought I'd get laughed at, but the lads absolutely loved it and were asking to do more drills of that. Um, rather yeah, 100%. Than, uh, if you come with confidence, that's the key, isn't it? You've got to sell it. Yeah. Coming, just say, right, this is what we're doing. Absolutely. And for those kids, the, the, those kids who do harbour professional aspirations, is there a point where you sort of go, right, this needs to look structured, for example, a match day, match day mm-hmm. warm-up? Um, or is it very context-driven? So, for example, when I started at uh, Middlesex, one of their traditions on certain grounds, um, obviously we didn't do it places, uh, well, actually, no, I tell you, we did do it places like Lords, but not in front of everybody. But the warm-up would start with a kickabout. And yeah. in my head, I was thinking, oh, Christ, you know, that's hamstring waiting to go and whatnot. Um, obviously, the sections, the pitches were designed so that people couldn't open up and sprint. But is there a certain time when you say, right, actually, this needs to look structured, this needs to look professional, or is it completely context dependent? Yeah, I think it's uh, context dependent. So, for example, at under 16 national age grade level, we introduced the concept of an individual warm up, and I kind of set them the task to, you know, run through what the ramp method is, and we get them to design it, and then straight away we'll go out and pitch the next session, and they'll get 10 minutes to do their individual warm up. And then they're kind of expected from then on in to do that and they're allocated time to do that. So that's a level at which things become a bit more structured. And obviously off the back of that, they're playing matches at an international level. So that's the kind of context for those, those expectations. However, like in the day-to-day situation at the academy, um, obviously we're kind of, so we are made up of guys at different clubs. Uh, so we might do stuff that's far more casual and more fun. Like I remember in the, when I was back in the borders as an assistant coach, every Friday morning we, we would play a little three-a-side or four-a-side game of football. And the guys loved it. Yeah. And, you know, it was a real simple way to get by. And same, same as yourself, though, we constrained the pitch, so no one was ever going to pull a hammy or do anything like that. Um, we get involved as well and have a kickabout. And these guys, you know, these guys are pretty much 17, 18, 19 years old, so they're old enough to do it sensibly. When time's called, that's it. But... That was a great, you know, they loved it. They look forward to, to a Friday morning. And with the, I was going to say, with the, so you'd never, for example, find something like that in a research paper saying, oh, get a ball out, have a kick about at Lords, and that'll be your pulse raiser. Um, yeah. You've written a book on how to actually get a job in strength and conditioning, and it goes a lot more than just getting qualifications. Why did you feel the need to write that book is my first question. And my second question is, what are the common skills that you believe aren't addressed through, for example, reading research papers or writing dissertations or other academic type skills? Mm. So firstly, I preface this by saying, I don't think I'm a fantastic strength and conditioning coach, but I think I'm very good at uh, constructing relationships with people quite quickly. And I think that's what people underestimate. So 
percent, there will be guys out there who are far better technical S and C coaches than me who can't get a job. I guarantee it. Um, so the reason I kind of constructed this resource was like frustration at, at great coaches who weren't able to get roles, um, and maybe people who were lesser kind of qualified who were getting them. Um, frustration at coaches who thought that more qualifications were the answer. So I've got to get a master's, I've got to get a PhD, or I've got to do this extra course. It's like actually there's plenty of guys at the top level with just a degree. Um, and I, I met a lot of aspiring coaches who were failing on the interpersonal part, like who could tell you all about post-activation potentiation but couldn't hold a conversation um, in terms of like coaching cues or couldn't connect with an athlete. So part of it was that. Part of it was um, a lot of people coming asking me, you know, how do you think I should go about trying to get a job? So I was repeating myself and the same kind of information. I thought, you know, I need to put this down on something, a resource I can give people. And then, you know, kind of the gratefulness of success on my part and being able to get into the industry and, and paying it forward and kind of helping other people, um, I guess, not make my mistakes and, and achieve the success that I've, I've been fortunate enough to achieve. You, you mentioned about uh, CPD earlier in the podcast and about bringing people together who you know you are going to give you something that you can use on Monday morning. Um, I'll use Shane Fitzgibbon as an example at the 2017 Childhood Champion Conference. Now, mm-hmm. whilst I didn't know it was a weakness of mine, Shane delivered a workshop as if we were literally all kids. Um, mm-hmm. And when I heard him do that, I was like, Jesus, this is, this is it. This is how I need to talk to kids. This is how I need to engage kids. This is what I've been missing. How, what advice would you give in terms of these people at university or prospective coaches developing that people skill set that's ultimately probably going to be the difference maker when it comes to them getting a job? Yeah, 100%. This is massive and it's not taught in university courses and it is, it's where most people fall down. Like we are in a people business. If you can't connect with other human beings, you are not going to make it. Biggest part of that is understanding that people make decisions emotionally and then justify them with logic afterwards. So they might say, oh, you didn't get the job because you didn't have enough experience. But what they got off, they didn't connect with you emotionally. They didn't like you by the end of the interview. It's nothing to do with your work experience. So actually, like people have, you have to create, create that connection, that relationship with people and report with people as quickly as possible. So get good at connecting with people from all backgrounds. So young and old, athletes, general public, people above and below your kind of job title. So that's just getting out and, and having you know, those relationships. And a big part of this, I would say, and this is where a lot of people also go wrong, is when there's a CPD event, don't go home when everyone goes for a beer. Like that is where the best conversations will happen. I remember we had um, Dan Baker, Dan John, and Steve Magnus at a kind of um, CPD event at St. Mary's. The best conversation happened at the pub around the corner. Like that's 100%. And people who went home missed out on that because all they saw was this, the slides. So get good at connecting with people. Don't just st- stick in your kind of silo um, of people at your level, your age, and your background. Like get out, develop your social skills, basically. Yeah. And likewise, the um, 2019 LTAD conference run by James Baker and Mike Young, although there were some decent take-homes from the, um, the two-day event itself, all the learning for me happened outside picking people's brains. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? How would you fix this? A hundred percent. That's for me. I was like, right. Did I really learn anything new? Probably not. But did I take home a lot of stuff from outside the event? Absolutely. And that's for me where the value of CPD comes. And to further your point about um, 
your video about CPD and what people get from it, if you're not hanging around after and you're complaining at the price of the speakers or whatever, you're missing the whole point. It's the fact you've got everyone there in one room at one time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, in terms of adding value to an organization, so you speak in your, uh, you've spoken in your blogs about how to get a job and saying that it's not just good enough to, for example, hand in your CV. How mm-hmm. might a relatively inexperienced coach seek to add value to an organization that's had coaches, for example, who have been there for decades or are vastly more experienced than this new intern coming into the organization? Mm. Uh, I can't remember what book I read. I read a lot of books, but um, where I kind of first came across this idea, like you need to add value. You don't get paid because of what's in the job description. You get paid because you're adding value. So if you want to get a role, you need to contribute something over and above what the expectation is. So my easiest piece of advice here is spot a gap and fill it. So if there's a gap in return to play protocols, for example, a gap in GPS monitoring or growth and maturation or contact skills in rugby or something you've spotted, spot it, fill it, and let them know you're filling it. So for example, when I first got my full-time role in, in the Scottish Rugby Academy, I, from the get-go, said, I'm really interested in growth and maturation. That's my bag. I want to do some more research into that. I want to produce a couple of papers. Um, and, and post presentations and I did last UK FCA we had two that were there that were with the kind of master students here so I kind of did that I put my money where my mouth was and I delivered on it so there's something you can add to your portfolio for the next interview so spot a gap and fill it and in regards to filling that gap and obviously actually spotting it you say that actually a lot of people ignore opportunities that they might perceive as lesser opportunities whether it's mm-hmm. working with youth athletes whether it's working with a general population what advice would you give to somebody who for example knows they need experience knows they probably need to do an internship of some kind how or what advice would you give in terms of uh prospective coaches evaluating whether or not they should go for this internship or this internship yeah, I think um, I don't have any kind of evidence to back this up other than anecdotal. But what I've noticed from the people that I was at university with and who went on to get work experience and then went on to to get a role is you should get work experience at or above the level you want to work at. So if you want to work in the premiership, don't get experience at, at League Two. If you want to work at League Two, getting experience around the corner – the local amateur isn't going to cut it. So what I've noticed is guys get experience at a certain level and then there's kind of a plus or minus one in terms of where they end up. So if they got experience in League Two, they didn't get a job at a premiership club. So you see what I'm saying here? So you should be experienced at or above the level you want to work at or the job you want. The second part would be to make sure it's actually valuable. So is there a structured CPD plan? Do you know that there's coaches there you specifically want to learn something from? Um, they've been successful previous interns that have gone on to get jobs or do they just spit out another five and next year they get another five it's a big one the other thing I would, I would say and people make this big mistake is if you're at uni for three years or four years in Scotland year one get experience in the academy year two progress the under 18s or the reserves or the under 23s or whatever it is these days and then the final year go and get it at the pro because then you've got experience coaching at three different levels if all you ever do is coach the pros it stands to reason that your next job is highly likely not going to be a pro environment it's going to be maybe the academy and suddenly you have no experience coaching people who are beginners in strength training 
It's an entirely different thing coaching a pro who knows how to back squat, knows how to bench press, and you're just prescribing the sets and reps compared to a kid who's never touched a back squat in their life. So get experience coaching across a range of age groups. Yeah, and even in one of your recent posts um, about the uh, work being done at Hibernian, you mentioned a lot of things which naturally as a coach of professional athletes you might take for granted, but just making sure the room flows well, making sure that it's ready to go, and you've not got, for example, kids arguing about rack height, or you've got a kid who's six for eight and a kid who's four for eight working in the same thing. What, yeah, are, what other things or what other aspects of coaching do you think you only get with experience? So for example, again, we've spoken about the difference between research and experience. There's not going to be a research paper saying don't pair a six for eight kid with a four for eight kid. But what other, yeah, yeah. What other coaching uh, examples can you think of that you've only learned having the experience that you've got? Um, I think like a lot of the coaching cues that I use that I've arrived at and kind of no work and, and that, you know, not for everyone, but maybe for 90% of people. I was really interesting actually when I was at Hibs, I was watching Steve Kernan coach plyos and he used exactly the same cue that I use, um, which is land like a ninja. Really, we've never spoken about it. We've never discussed it. He's never watched me coach. That's the first time I watched him coach and we use the same cue. So there's obviously a reason we've both arrived at that and it's experience. So things like um, the, the cues I use, the progressions I use as well. So there's a very particular kind of progression system that I use for coaching a squat, for example. I've arrived at that after years of trying to teach people to back squat first and it not working. Um, so a kind of segmented approach in terms of what I'm looking for and how I'm challenging. So those would be the biggest things. The other thing would be like, I guess the human aspect, like realizing that if your, co- if your athletes don't like you, like it comes back to what I said earlier about you know, making decisions emotionally and justifying them with logic. If your athletes don't like you, there's already an inherent resistance to your program, even if it's in their benefit, because emotionally they don't want to do something for you because they don't like you. If they like you, you're already going to get better buy-in. And actually how much the athlete is consistent with your program dictates the results and dictates the performance of it. So you could have someone who has a fantastic program, but who has zero athlete buy-in doesn't get the results. You could have someone who has a really shoddy program, but the athletes believe in them and the program hundred percent and they get brilliant results. So who's really the good coach there is the person who's produced the complex one, but got no buy-in or the person who produced that really simple, but has got the buy-in from the athlete. Yeah. One thing I'd, I mean, I'm sure there'll be more research papers coming out. I don't know how you'd quite standardize it, but going back to the UKSC conference in 2017, I think where John Kiley spoke and saying that even the relationship with how an athlete views said exercise, or as you said, how the athlete gets on with the coach can possibly even affect the adaptation that they're getting. I'd love to see, for example, one group of athletes, well, two group of athletes do the same program, but one is just led by a different coach each week and they can't really build a relationship versus one group where they absolutely idolize their coach and would run through a brick wall and just mm. simply see how that affects results on testing day. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because uh, it reminds me of, um, I think I'm pretty sure it was Ashley Jones that said this, but he said that every season he would, he would give his program to his rival clubs. And he's so insecure in doing that because I know even with the sets and reps and the exercise, they're not going to coach it the way I coach it because they're not going to use the cues. They don't have the relationship with the players. They don't understand the rationale. So even giving them black and white, exactly the same program is like, they still won't get the results I'll get. 
that's brilliant. I absolutely love that. I mean, when I was at the IS with GB Boxing, I remember pestering the coaches. I was like, where's this part in the program? And, you know, can I have a look at the program? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. But, you know, if you don't understand the rationale, how it's coached, how it's delivered, why this athlete's doing this because they're preparing for this competition on this date versus these athletes who've gone a little bit longer. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make. They think there's this one magical program that regardless yeah, of context, this one magical program will, for you, get you your hypertrophy goals, you, your strength goals, you, your performance goals. And for you, it'll make you get you into your wedding dress. And it all, you know, there's this one secret that people are waiting for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, just to wrap up, so you said, obviously, you mentioned a few books off air and you said, obviously, personal development is something that's very important to you. Um, I'm going to ask for one person that you would recommend for me or just other listeners to follow on social media and why uh, one person for me to speak to and why, and maybe we'll go one book to read and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the person to follow on social media, I had thought about this cause there's an awful lot, but the person I picked out would be James Baker. So yep. from performance and aspire Qatar. Um, so his kind of social media handle is at performance team. Uh, just because of the awesome work that he's done in implementing LTAD. Um, and he shares a lot of that in terms of the videos, the kind of thought process, the, the structure, the plans. So that's someone really useful uh, to follow on social media. In terms of one person to speak to and why, um, I would say Dan Baker because yeah. he, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have, have a few beers with Dan. I like him a lot. And he's really open with his information. He'll tell you exactly what he did at the Broncos, how he did it, why he did it, what the setup was. Uh, he's also someone who, you know, he's got a PhD, um, so he can talk at the highest level, but equally he can bring it down to layman's terms really easily and is really accessible when it is a good guy. Uh, what was the other one? A book. Uh, one oh, book. Yeah. I mean, one you can, book. You can name Restricted a couple. me to one. Um, so I try and read a book a month minimum because I just there's so much great stuff out there. So there's, there's a lot of, of really good books. Um, the, one, the thing that springs to mind at the moment would be The One Thing. Um, because uh, I've read that quite recently. So that kind of premise behind that is what's the one thing that's giving you the biggest bang for your buck? So whether that's a training program or kind of building your business, it's about really focusing in on that, protecting your time around that and, and driving that forward. So similar to the Pareto principle in economics in terms of the 20% that's giving you your 80% return. So. And ironically, talking about the one thing, obviously we've spoken about CPD, we've spoken about business, uh, obviously all things strength and conditioning. If uh, sports coaches or parents were to take one thing from this chat or, or S&C coaches, whichever market you prefer, what would you like that one thing to be? I would say uh, strength and conditioning is more than just lifting weights. It's more than just the gym. So I know parents are often kind of apprehensive about that. So yes, that is important. We do want our guys to get strong, but it's about developing a toolbox of athletic skills. So that means things for students that probably didn't get covered in a university course. So that means gymnastics, calisthenics, things like animal flow, uh, wrestling, in addition to your usual squat, bench, deadlift, clean programs, etc. So thinking outside the box as to what strength conditioning is um, because it's a whole lot more than just lifting. It's a toolbox of athletic skills. Oh, absolutely. Um, as I, I think it's the title of a book somewhere, but uh, it's not just about sets and reps. Um, mm. And finally, uh, before I uh, sort of say goodbye and thank you for your time, where can the listeners find out more about yourself, uh, at athletic evolution and the services you provide? 
So the first place would be the website, so athleticevolution.co.uk, which is where we do a lot of our kind of blog posts, uh, ask the expert interviews and, and product reviews and stuff like that. The second one where you'll get more content will be Facebook. So if you look up Athletic Evolution, you'll find us there. Really been um, trying to produce a lot of good video content there for people. And then uh, Twitter and Instagram, just at Athletic Evo UK um, would be the, the best place to find us. Perfect. And I will uh, provide links to your uh, your book on how to actually get a job in strength and conditioning. And of course, the uh, Athletic Evolution Conference on June the 2nd, I'll put links to the tickets in the show notes as well. Um, absolute pleasure chatting to you, Rob, and thank you very much for your time. You too. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Cheers, mate. Cheers. So a big thank you to Rob Anderson of Athletic Evolution. 